Thank you, worship team as well. I always love being back here and worshiping under the worship team here and Michael's leading. And um, so yeah, I'm Harrison. It's so good to be with you guys. Um, I, after the service, I'll be in the uh, fellowship hall uh, downstairs. Would love to meet you if I've never met you before. Um, yeah, we've, we consider it a huge honor to be considered for the associate pastor position here. And so thank you for giving us that opportunity. So for Advent, you guys have been going through a series on uh, Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Um, and uh, today, Todd's asked me to conclude that series with the passage that we just read, which I found out from listening to the sermon last week. This is Jim Osborne's favorite passage of the Bible. So get ready. It's, it's, it's a good one. Um, so, uh, but, but first, before we dive in there, um, what did you ask for for Christmas this year? For me, growing up, I always asked for every year a turtle. Uh, turtles were by far my favorite animal. Um, they carry their house on their back, uh, one and one in my house. Uh, and my mom was very clear that turtles had salmonella and that they were illegal to own. And I wasn't probably going to get one. So I did what every smart kid does. I went around her to the big man, Santa Claus. And I was like, hey, uh, you know, Santa, can I get a turtle I figured he doesn't follow the law of the land anyways, right? He just breaks into people's houses and he's got magic so he could, uh, you know, maybe make a turtle without salmonella. So uh, each year I would uh, wait for Christmas. Uh, I would hope that a turtle would be down there and I'll come downstairs and there would not be a turtle. And over time, the sadness and loss of this feeling led to me beginning to give up hope and ever getting a turtle. And that led me to stop asking, stop trying to get a turtle. So in Advent, uh, we are waiting and hoping uh, as well, and not for turtles necessarily, uh, but for the most important things in life. We're, we're waiting and hoping for freedom from the sin that hurts us and others every day. We're waiting and hoping for the uh, rest from just endless work and toil of this life. We're waiting to, uh, for a feeling of overwhelming acceptance um, that lets us be free from having to navigate all the clicks of school in this world. Um, we're waiting for uh, peace so we don't have to worry about how we're going to pay our next bill. Um, we're, we're waiting for security, uh, how, how we can uh, possibly... Uh, not worry about dying one day or people we love dying one day of cancer or pandemic. Uh, we're waiting and hoping for all these things in Advent, but when you're waiting for something a long time, it can be easy to start losing hope that you'll ever get that thing. And, and as you begin to lose hope, um, it leads us to stop trying to, to get those things, to stop asking for them, to stop seeking them. So the, the passage we're looking at today there's two lesser known disciples traveling on this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're in that exact position. Um, they were part of the people of Israel that had uh, wanted to, um, basically had been, had been put in exile for a long time and then had been brought back from exile uh, to Rome. And, and when they were brought back, uh, they considered themselves still in exile in their own land uh, because the, Rome, the Romans ruled their land with uh, an oppressive hand. 
And so uh, they, they longed to be free and to be a people again. And so uh, they, they saw a promised Messiah that God, that God had promised them that many believed, including these disciples, many believed that the Messiah's main goal was to free them from this oppression, uh, to, to deliver them from Rome and to, to um, restore them to their former glory. And so they'd had a lot of figures rise up saying that they were gonna do this. Uh, and the latest of these was Jesus. And each time these figures came up and they got excited and then the, the movement would fail and then they all would be lost. And, and Jesus had so much potential. He spoke with authority. He did incredible miracles. And then he was publicly humiliated, tortured and killed. So after three days of shock, these two disciples are giving up on the movement, They're traveling back to where they came from, to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem. And they're feeling a loss of hope and they're wanting to give up. And Jesus, as you see in this passage, doesn't leave them there. He doesn't leave us, us there either. So what does Jesus give us when we lose hope and want to give up? We're going to look at three things. He gives us his presence. He gives us his perception. And he gives us, gives us his power. Presence, perception, power. Let's pray. Father, um, as we look at this passage today, would you um, be with us? Um, even though this is a time where I'm being considered as a pastor for this church, Lord, Lord, would we be able to look past that and actually hear your word given to us this morning? Um, even me, when I'm up here, your son. Um, Lord, teach us uh, what, what you give us in the midst of our feelings of hopelessness that come at times and um, give us your presence, perception, and power to you as we hear this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first, the first thing he gives them is his presence. Uh, look with me in verse 15. You guys got it in front of you in your bulletins. Um, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So discussing uh, means disputing, actually. They're arguing. Uh, and it's kind of assumed that they're probably arguing about where things went wrong with Jesus. And Jesus enters in with them right then and there. And then verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So were kept is a passive verb, meaning somebody else is doing the action. And this is a, something called, theologians call the divine passive. It's when it's assumed that God is keeping their eyes from seeing Jesus. In their, in their moment of despair. Why would God be doing that? Let's keep, let's keep reading to find out. Verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Verse 18. One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened there in these days? This is maybe the most ironic statement ever said in the whole Bible. <laughs> Uh, irony, uh, dramatic irony, especially here, is when we, the reader, know something that the, the people in the story don't know, and that's that they're talking to Jesus. And it's ironic for two reasons. One reason is that um, Jesus obviously knew what happened. Uh, it happened to him, right? He was the one who was crucified and killed. But the other reason, the more ironic reason, is that we find out from their recap of the events that they have no idea what happened in Jerusalem. No idea. Jesus actually is the only one who knows what really happened on the cross in Jerusalem. 
So God creates this irony for them with this statement. And then they continue in verse 22 through 24, telling a story of these women that go to the tomb, find it empty. Uh, angels are there and say, no, Jesus is risen. They come back, tell the people, and these guys dismiss them. These guys are like, well, it's kind of a tall tale, wives tale. We're not gonna listen to that. Uh, and they won't let their heart hope again after being crushed. And they still don't recognize Jesus. And the, and the story goes on. They travel miles. Jesus does the most incredible Bible study that's ever happened with them on this, on this walk. And then they get home. They get to one of the guy's houses, sit down, about to eat a meal. And they still don't recognize Jesus. God keeps their eyes from seeing him. Why? I think God does this to suggest to us, suggest to them and to us thousands of years later, that in, in our moments where we're, lost hope, where we've given up, where we feel utterly abandoned by God. It's in those moments that Jesus is standing right there with us. And so in this moment of losing hope, Jesus gives them their presence. The irony of the story reminds me of uh, a great classic story, The Odyssey. Any Odyssey readers or seen the movie or... um, yeah, there you go, there you go. So Odyssey is a great story, you should read it. Uh, it it's about, it's at the end of the Trojan War, um, King Odysseus is tr- trying to travel home to his kingdom of Ithaca, and he's traveling with his men by sea, but the, the, the thing is, he's angered the god of the sea, Poseidon. And uh, is there a ring? Is this coming from my thing? Okay, okay. Great, great, okay. So, they, so he's angered the god of the sea, Poseidon, and he's tra- as he's traveling, um, he goes on this long and perilous, unpredictable journey and he can't seem to get, to get home. And so his wife, Penelope, is left at home in the kingdom waiting for years to see, uh, to see her husband again, not sure if he's alive, not sure if he's ever coming back. And uh, she's also surrounded by 108 annoying, boisterous suitors who are trying to win her hand and become king of Ithaca. And so the best part of the story for me is when Odysseus gets back. Finally, at the end, he arrives back there, but he's not sure if Penelope has been uh, loyal to him. He's not sure if, uh, if his servants or his people have been loyal to him. So he dresses up as a beggar and goes into the palace to see what's become of the place. And he encounters Penelope while he's in there and they have a conversation. Um, and she doesn't recognize him. He's dressed as this beggar. Uh, and and, and he, he mentions to her, he goes, no, you know, Odysseus is going to come back. And at the mention of his name, she just breaks down. Just the mention of the name. She says this, but verily I will go to my upper chamber and lay me on my bed, which has become for me a bed of wailings, ever bedewed with my tears since the day when Odysseus went to see that place that should never be named. She goes up to her chamber and cries herself to sleep. And that is the exact same irony in that story that that God has happened to these disciples here while they're lamenting and mourning Jesus, talking about how everything went south in this one moment. Jesus is standing alive right there next to him. And that, I think, is to suggest to us that in our moments of losing hope, in our moments of sadness, that Jesus, our hope, is right there with us when we feel abandoned by God. We are never abandoned.
And so what about for you? Are there times in your life when you felt abandoned by God? Uh, this can, Satan gives us a lot of opportunities for this. Uh, there's, there's a guy in my church now who has leg tremors at night. Uh, tries to go to sleep. His leg shakes. Uh, it keeps him from really ever going to sleep. It's been happening for seven years. Been to counselors, been to doctors, got medication. Nothing's worked. Prayed so many times. And he cannot sleep. You know how hard it is to do life without ever sleeping? It is easy for this guy to think that God has abandoned him. Maybe for you, it's navigating the online, the tough online dating world. Searching through endless profiles of people, trying to find a solid Christian person to do life with, and still being alone. You've prayed. It's easy to feel like God has maybe abandoned you. Maybe for you, it's being hurt by the church. Maybe for you, it's uh, sometime in your life, uh, you've been someone in the name of God has harmed you. And so for, for those people, it's sadly common in our country. Um, these days, you see it on the news often. Maybe for you, it's easy to think God's abandoned you. But in this passage for these disciples, and I think it's true for us too, that Jesus, one thing, we don't know a lot about our suffering, but one thing that we do know is that Jesus has not left you. The things we know about Jesus is he says that he's going to be with us until, be with us always, even until the end of the age. We know that he intercedes on our behalf before God, that he begs God for our good, that he cries with us in our pain like he did for Lazarus' friends, and that he died to be in a relationship with you. He gave everything for you. So how could he possibly leave you in your time of need? So in our time of losing hope, Jesus gives us his presence. Look with me in the second point. Uh, so now Jesus gives this presence. He also gives them his perception. So look with me in verse 25. So uh, after they say they don't, they don't believe the women, Jesus replies, he just blurts out probably, oh foolish ones and slow at heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish and slow at heart don't mean dumb. He's not like you idiots. Um, what he's really saying is they have a sinful stubbornness in their heart to actually see and perceive and take in what the scriptures are saying. Isn't that crazy? Our, our sin can change the way we read the Bible. You can just read over certain verses you don't like. That's what had happened to them. They hadn't accepted what was there. So Jesus says, foolish and slow at heart. And so Jesus breaks through their stubbornness two ways. Uh, he says, uh, one, one thing, verse 27 breaks through and says, beginning with Moses and the, all the prophets, he interpreted for, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is the center of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is soaked with Jesus. That's what we've been doing with this series, uh, Prophet, Priest, and King. I've not been doing it, Todd and uh, Jim Osborne have been doing it. Uh, is that the offices of the Old Testament, the people that God set apart to serve the people, prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is the epitome of all of those for us. All of those pointed to him 
doing that on our behalf, which he does. And so uh, this was an accident actually, but it, this, these three things show up in this passage. So my three points, Jesus is present with us, gives us his perception, gives us his power. Check this out. Gives us his presence as a priest, gives us his perception as a prophet, and gives us his power as a king. Just happened. I didn't plan that. Pretty cool. Uh, I think his offices just show up for us. They just show up. He's doing them always. Um, And so this is the first thing he shows in the scriptures about Jesus. He's at the center of it all. And the second thing he says in uh, verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, this is what they had missed. It had been clear from scripture, especially Isaiah 52 through 53, that the Messiah was going to be someone who was a priest, but who suffered on behalf of the people, that he would not sacrifice a lamb for their sins, but he would sacrifice himself to take away their sins forever. That is their suffering priest, and they had missed that. Um, Jesus also told them many times in his in his uh, ministry, if you read through the gospels, he's always like, oh, by the way, just so you guys know, I'm going to the cross, going to die, rising in three days, just so you know. And then it happens and they're like, what? Uh, because they were not wanting to hear it. It didn't fit with their plan of how things were going to go. During COVID, when COVID first hit, uh, one of my pastor, co-pastors at the church where I, I am now, um, he was making a puzzle with his son. Um, and it was a Finding Nemo puzzle. So it had blue water all around and then a little orange Nemo in the middle. Uh, and Nemo's a fish. Everyone should know Nemo here. Um, but uh, as they were making this puzzle, so they had put all the pieces on except for the last Nemo piece. And so his son picks up this orange piece. The whole puzzle's blue. And he goes, he goes, Dad, this piece doesn't go with the puzzle. The whole puzzle is blue and this is orange. And his dad gets a piece and he goes, son, this is the center of the puzzle. This is the point of the puzzle. This is Nemo. You know, it smacks it down. Jesus is saying to the disciples, they're saying, hey, Jesus, this, this suffering piece doesn't fit with my puzzle. It doesn't go with what our life is supposed to be like. And Jesus says, no, this is the center of it all. This is the point of the puzzle. I am at the center of everything and I am a sufferer. This is Jesus. That's what he's saying to them. Jesus is at the center of scriptures and Jesus is a sufferer. So if Jesus is with you, you might assume, why wouldn't he just take my pain away, right? If he's with you, why wouldn't he just fix the problems? And this is why he gives us his perception is the same way that Jesus was a sufferer and always meant to suffer. Us being united to him, the man of sorrows, we were always meant to suffer. Jesus tells us we're going to suffer. He says, hey, in this world, by the way, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, He commands us to suffer. He says, oh, take up your cross daily and follow me. Your torture device, pick up your torture device, follow me to where? To suffering and death. He even turns people away. He's like, by the way, count the cost before you come with me. It's going to be really bad for quite a while. And so what that means for us is that uh, well, he actually does say, too, that there's glory on the other side. It's not worth even comparing to the suffering. But what that means for us in this time of suffering 
is that we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. Shouldn't be surprised. And when we pray for God to take it away, we cannot expect him to take it away completely because the plan is suffering and then glory. So when things come like potentially, I don't want to say it out loud, but maybe another year of COVID, shouldn't be surprised. Suffering now and then glory. When a church member passes away, we've lost a lot this year in our church. Shouldn't be surprised. Suffering now and then glory. When people view you as a bigot for being a Christian and distance themselves in relationships from you and by work, shouldn't be surprised. It's suffering now and then glory. This is the perception Jesus gives us. He's at the center of it all. He's a sufferer and we are sufferers. Why? Because we're fighting against a world that's ruled by the powers of darkness that fight back. We're sharing Christ with a world that doesn't want him. And he wants to win them to himself. And that involves us in pain. But that's the plan. So that's Jesus' perception. For some of us, in, the, in our moments of, of losing hope, feeling hopeless, wanting to give up, those two things are enough. Um, Jesus' presence with you, Jesus' perception, those two things are enough. Um, but for others of us, uh, we know those things in life. We know Jesus is with us. We know that he has a plan. But there's still a barrier that we can't seem to get over. There's still something stopping us from being able to hope. And so that leads us to the third point. Jesus is giving us his power. Um, Look with me in verse 30 through 31. Jesus acts like he's going further on the journey. uh, And then they ask him to come to his house and he agrees. In verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So, so we're opened is a divine passive again. It assumes God now is opening their eyes finally and they're seeing, recognizing Jesus. And I think, I think the passage assumes that this process started a little earlier. Verse 32, they said, um, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And so something was happening inside them were burning within it. What's, what is this? Um, there are videos on YouTube that are showing people in poor countries that have been blind for a long time, blind since birth, that actually can be fixed with a 15-minute relatively easy surgery. And so doctors travel the world um, opening people's eyes um, 15 minutes of time. And there's one video of two girls in, in India, two sisters, maybe five or six years old. And, uh, and they had long prayed. They said in this interview, they prayed that for God to, to open their eyes. They didn't know why God had made them blind. And uh, the video shows um, the moment that they, their bandages come off. And for one girl, one side pops up a little bit and you see her eye just going just all around everywhere, taking in as much as possible. And then when both of them come off, their jaws just drop. And they're in this room and one girl walks over to the window and grabs a curtain and just waves it. And the other girl like walks out the front door, the sun's setting at this moment, and she just stares at the sunset. 
And then it pans to their mom and they run to their mom and say, Mom, I can see, I can see. This is the power the disciples needed from Jesus, not just to recognize him physically, but to really see him spiritually, to see him as their prophet, king, and suffering priest. And he had been present with them. He had given them his perception along the road, but also what he was doing is while they were walking, the Holy Spirit in their hearts was doing surgery to pry their eyes open. That is the power they needed God to open their eyes. And the crazy thing about all this is, the reason the Holy Spirit was able to do that surgery is because Jesus, their priest, suffered. These are two undeserving, stubborn sinners walking away from God, walking away from his call in their life. And Jesus, their priest, bore those sins along with all the other sins of their life on himself on the cross in the moment that they saw as a failure and that they saw as weakness, they saw as God abandoning them. That was the exact moment that Jesus was making a way for them to be with him. He was not abandoning them, but he was freeing them. Something better than they could ever have imagined. On the cross, he won a right as their king to show up on this road and do surgery on people that don't deserve it. And that was their prophet, priest, and king, and that's who they finally saw at the table with them. And he went through hell and did all that because he loves them. That's the amazing part. He loves us too. So what might you need God's power for this morning? What might you need surgery for from God, from the Holy Spirit to fix in your life? These are the problems that you've been trying over and over again to fix on your own and you've not seen any results. Could be um, the shame in your life. Uh, It's a voice in your head that beats you up at the smallest mistake you make. And you've read books on it. You've been to counseling for years. You've met with Todd and Michael and all the staff, everyone. Um, and it's still there. You need God's power to open, pry open your eyes to see you the way he does. As someone who is deeply loved, regardless of the actions you've taken in your life. This could be a a relationship that you've worked hard to fix and just can't seem to fix. Could be overwhelming anxiety. Could be a long season of grief you can't just seem to get out of. Could be a sin in your life that's just always there. The Bible is clear. God has the power that you need and I need to get free. So you can ask him for that he will give it to you. I'm suspecting if we all prayed that prayer today, which we should, for a certain area of our lives, next week we come back and for some of us, the suffering we've been going through is gone. Cancer diagnosis, gone. 
relationship magically healed. For others of us, I'm expecting that we come in and have had a moment of clarity that our eyes had been pried open to see Jesus with us in our suffering, to see through his eyes, scripture and suffering as being the center of our lives and to see his power made perfect in the suffering that he's given us there and made perfect in our weakness. What I think this passage is suggesting that God's got a lot of power, but the first path in taking away your suffering is not necessarily better than the second path, which is seeing Jesus. And so maybe he wants to do one of those for you this morning. Ask him to do that. One day uh, in Advent, we look forward to the day that we get both of these at the same time. We get to see Jesus coming and he wipes away every tear. And on that day, you'll never feel bad ever again. That's his power given to us. Let's end with this. Uh, At the end of the story, Jesus vanishes, classic Jesus. And the disciples, uh, that, that very hour, get up, return to Jerusalem. Return to a place where a small band of Jesus' followers are being hunted by the the religious leaders to be put to death the same way Jesus was killed. And they're people that had lost hope as well. And they're going back, but this time they're going back with a story. Y'all, we saw Jesus. He was there. He walked with us for a long time. He gave us his perception of the scriptures. Suffering, he was meant to suffer and we're meant to suffer too. And they're going back with this power with their, with their eyes opened to share that with them. And they have renewed hope and renewed obedience. And so I wonder what kind of obedience God might be calling you back to this morning. Where in your life have you given up on obeying God's commands? What could it be calling you back to? I don't know what it is. Maybe for you, it could be hoping in him for the first time in your life. Hoping that there is a God and that he does love you for the first time. Wherever you are, whatever you've given up on, this passage is clear that Jesus longs for you to hope in him again. Will you risk it? He's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world, which is easy to lose hope in you. It's easy to feel abandoned by you. And that's why you give us so much. You give us passages like these to remind us, Lord, that you've got a plan, that you are with us, and that your power will set us free either today or one day soon. And in this time of Advent, Lord, help each one of us to not lose hope in him. Renew our hope, renew our obedience this week. Give us your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.